Hello. Okay. Well, if you are in third grade or under and you would like to go to Children's Church, you may head back there now. For the rest of us, we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark. Excuse me, set this down right here. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. Oh, no, you go back. Okay, so go see Mr. Jared back there at the exit. So for many of them, uh, this is our, their first time to go to Children's Church. So it's an exciting day. I know Lily was pretty pumped. Um, but for those of us here, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be starting a new series that's going to take us all the way through November, um, in which we're calling it, Who Then Is This? Um, and so we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark. And so as you're turning here, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. So Mark was written by a guy named John Mark, who was, uh, he was, he was a friend of, of, of Paul's and, and was cousin of Barnabas. And they had a, a, at one point they were missionaries and he was going along with Paul and Barnabas and then um, he decided he was kind of tired and wanted to go home and so he left them and then later on when they were going to go on another missionary journey, Paul said, no, you left us last time. You're not coming with us. And then that kind of created friction between him and his buddy Barnabas. And, but that's, this is that guy. Now, this is interesting um, because the Gospel of Mark is, is actually Peter's account of what happened. And so, and so Papias, the reason I brought this other book up here, was an early church father. He was a pastor who was actually a disciple of John, who was uh, one of Jesus' disciples. And in this, I want to read this to you because it's kind of cool. He is telling us about this gospel, about the gospel of Mark, and saying who wrote it. And so he said, the elder, which is John, the guy who wrote the gospel of John and Revelation, and who's very type A, by the way, we're going to find out in here. Uh, he used to say this, Mark, having become Peter's interpreter, and so he listened to Peter preach a lot, and he started writing down some of his stuff, wrote down accurately everything he remembered Peter say though not in order, of the things either said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teachings as needed, which means he preached regularly in churches, but had no intention of giving an order account of the Lord's sayings. Consequently, Mark did nothing wrong in writing down some of these things he, as he remembered them, for he made it his one concern not to omit anything that he heard or to make any false statement in them. Which I thought, thought that was kind of interesting. So Papias is writing about Mark, writing the Gospel of Mark. And so we can trust it, we can follow it, because it is Peter's account. And Peter was there. He was an eyewitness of Jesus from, from day one. And so what's cool about this is Mark is actually written in such a way or, or it's, it's, it's recorded in such a way that it was Peter's sermons. Like Peter, he would go to different churches, and he would preach, or he would tell them stories about what he remembered Jesus doing in the world. And, and so Mark is writing these things down. So these are like live, like actual teachings from the first century, not that the other books weren't. But I just think that was really cool about this, is that this is what Peter was teaching in churches. 
And, uh, and so I thought that was kind of cool. And, and so you might have a question of like, okay, when was this written? How much later was it? Can we really trust it? It was written probably 20 to 30 years after Jesus died. So in the 50s or the 60s A.D. But then John chapter 14, verse 26, tells us something interesting about what, what was going to happen after Jesus died. It says this, I have spoken, Jesus is saying this, I have spoken these things to you while I remained with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've told you. And so this gospel is Peter's account 20 years after Jesus died, and it was the Spirit who brought these things to Peter's mind to remember them accurately to where they can be recorded for you and for me today. Isn't that crazy? And so that's where we're at. So I want to give you the roadmap for our journey through this gospel, okay? So it's, it's, it's got three sections in it. I'm going to give it two, okay? Because one of them is kind of a kind of a mini section. So I'm going to tack that on to the second section. And so, so for, for us leading up through November is what we're going to look at, and it's Mark 1 through 8. This is the first half of the Gospel of Mark. And so what's happening here is there is a major question for, for everyone. There are three groups in the Gospel of Mark. There's the disciples, there's the crowd, and then there are the religious leaders. And all three of them are asking the same question, who is this? And so you're going to see a repeated refrain within this is there's an astonishment of wondering, who is this guy? He's doing these crazy things. He's, he's causing the wind and the sea to obey him. Who is this? So they're all asking the question, and all of them come up with a different answer. And so, and so no one actually fully gets it until the very end after Jesus dies. There's a centurion who looks at Jesus and says, oh my gosh, you really were the Son of God. But the reason this is the first half is because it's leading, this first half is the question, who is this? And it leads up to Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. And so, uh, and so that's where we're, we're going to be. Now, Mark's main thesis, his main idea is presented in, in verse 1. So look at verse 1 of chapter Mark. Here's what he's saying. This is his introduction. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is how Mark is beginning this entire gospel. He wants to tell you two things. This entire thing is good news about Jesus, who's the Christ. That's a title. It's not a last name. And what that means is he is the anointed one, the Messiah. He's the one that God said was going to come and redeem his people. But that's not the only thing Mark wants to tell us about Jesus. There's a second thing here. He says, this is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. That's what he's saying. And Jesus doesn't use that phrase of himself in this, in this uh, gospel, but everyone else uses it about him. And so this is after his resurrection. It becomes clear to everyone, this is the Son of God. And what he means by that, what he means by that is this guy is unique. He is a king, but he's not only a king. He is the king or the entire universe because he has a special relationship with God that no one else can have. He is literally God's son. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. And so he is the promised one who's come to rescue us, and he is God's son. And so in this manner, we can say God came to us. 
And that's what he's saying here in the Gospel of Mark in this first verse. That's his thesis statement. But then we're going to look at the second section of Mark starting in January. We're going to take a break for Christmas, do Advent stuff, you know, Christmassy things. And then starting in January, we're going to do look at the second half of Mark. And so this is from 927 through, through chapter 16. And, uh, and the reason this is the second half is because after Jesus makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ, like, oh my gosh, this really is him, all of a sudden the entire tone of the book shifts and it all of a sudden becomes about, yes, now you know that I'm the king. But I want to show you what it looks like for me to, 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 to enter into my kingdom. And it's, it's far from what you and I think. Because immediately after, Peter doesn't get it. And he says, wait, no, like Peter, like Jesus, you're not going to die. You're, I'm not going to let that happen. And he says, you are thinking on human terms. You're not thinking the thoughts of God. And what he's saying is that there is something I'm going to go through en route to my kingdom, and that is suffering. And so the entire second half of the book is Jesus heading towards the cross. And he makes it very clear to everyone around him that I'm not a king you think of. I'm not a king that you would expect. I'm one that's going to endure suffering en route to my kingdom. That's what the second half of the book is about. And so it's about the pathway to glory, which is through suffering. And we're going to look at that starting in January. Now, as we approach the beginning of this series, the beginning of this gospel, in verses 1 through 8, which are what we're going to look at today, a guy named John the Baptist, really we, we come to something of a lighthouse, okay? So I was going to call this sermon something different, but I decided against it because it had to do with guns, and I thought that was kind of risky. And so, um, and so we're going with lighthouses. So I was searching the, okay, I searched the internet for, for cool lighthouse stories, okay? I was like, hey, man, this would be awesome. This would be really helpful. Lighthouses, they like are a warning thing, and they help you find your way when you're coming and trying to navigate upon the horizon, trying to find land. It's perfect. John the Baptist, I need a cool story about a lighthouse. I came across a website, uh, which, is, which is for a, a, an organization dedicated to being the primary source for lighthouses and lighthouse heritage. That's the primary source to be inf informative about lighthouses and lighthouse heritage. It's called the United States Lighthouse Society. It's a legit thing. They get this whole website. Okay, so they've got a selection of lighthouse poems. I was going to read one to you. I didn't. Uh, they've got book reviews on lighthouse books. And they've got lighthouse trivia, which we're going to do in just a second. But you know what they don't have? Any stories of how a lighthouse is useful makes no, doesn't make any sense to me. But we're going to do lighthouse trivia right now, okay? And so if you know these answers, good for you. You can join the club. True or false, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was a lighthouse. It's true, actually. It's true. You're all wrong. Okay, it's, it's called Pharos in Alexandria. It's in Egypt. It was a really tall lighthouse, 300 feet tall. Uh, it was constructed in two, it started in 280 BC. It just was destroyed in the 1400s because of an earthquake. Okay, number two. In 1719, the first fog signal, it was installed at Little Brewster's Island Lighthouse, which is Boston. What was the, what was the horn? A. A trumpet. B, a one-ton bell. C, a cannon. Or D, 
a foghorn. I'm going to give you three seconds to, I can't, no, I'm not going to do that. That's dangerous. One. Okay. It was a cannon. That was the first foghorn. So I guess you just load up with cannonballs. I mean, like, it's foggy. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how many you set off to allow people to see that it's foggy. I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> okay, and which, way, which angle do you shoot it? If it's foggy, how do you know if you're shooting at a d- ship? It doesn't, okay. Okay, here's a, here's a tricky one. Which U.S. state has the most lighthouses? Michigan, New York, Maine, or California? See, I thought Maine too. It's not. It's Michigan. Did you know that Michigan has 3,000 miles of coastline with the Great Lakes? It's crazy. They have like legit beaches there. Okay, there's the last one. Last one. Then I'll move on because this is not, at this point, we've got the point, but whatever. What is the study? I, th- I don't know if this dude, oh, by the way, I didn't give you credit. This trivia was made by the proprietor of seethelights.com. C-E-A, thelights.com. Okay, that guy. There's a lot of people really into lighthouses, so much so that they make trivia and put it on other websites. But here's the last, I don't know if he made this up or not, but whatever. What is the study of lighthouses called? Luminology, illuminology, pharmacology, (laughs) or pharology? It's pharology from Pharos in Alexandria, the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, in case you forgot the first question. Okay, now, why do I tell you all of this? I, I understand that's ridiculously stupid, but, I, but why do I tell you all of this? Because lighthouses, they mark dangerous coastlines. They, like, they, they serve as a warning beacon for people as they're coming onto dangerous lands or dangerous coastlines or, or just trying to find their way during fog. Lighthouses serve as a beacon of safety and warning for people as they're, as they're approaching land. And in the same way as we approach the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we come across a lighthouse on the horizon in the name of John the Baptist who serves as both a warning for us and also to direct us on the correct pathway in figuring out who it is who's coming after him. And so, and so that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at here today in the Gospel of Mark. And so open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to look, we already looked at verse 1, so we're going to start at verse 2, and here's what it says. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with his leather belt around his waist and and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I is is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize, baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
And so as we get into God's Word, let's pray and ask Him to speak to us this morning. So, Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for your Word. And I pray as we embark on this uh, journey through the Gospel of Mark that you would uh, open up our eyes to see, um, see Jesus and, and, and who He is and what following Him means. And so I pray that you would speak to us today and that you would, you would open our eyes for, 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 for John the Baptist, to like his, his, his ministry and what that meant for the people then and what it means for us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this section begins with two quotations from the Old Testament. So it says, uh, it's written by Isaiah the prophet. He's kind of lumping these into one because Isaiah was the, like kind of the, the foremost prophet in, the, in, in like kind of the letter half of the, the Old Testament. But there's really two different prophets quoted here. The first one, uh, the first one is Malachi, and the second one is Isaiah. And so here's the Malachi quotation. Here's what it says. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. And that's from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And so what's happening in the book of Malachi is there are a bunch of priests who are unfaithful to God. They're sinful, they're rebellious, and they're leading God's people to become unfaithful to Him or to continue being unfaithful to Him. They were the people set up to lead them to serve God as His people, but they're the ones who are leading them astray. And so Malachi Malachi is sent. He's a prophet who goes, and he's, he's proclaiming against these people, saying, hey, listen, God's going to come. He's going to bring judgment upon you guys, and so therefore, you better get your lives straight. You better follow God. And he says, the great day of the Lord is coming, and he's saying, therefore, God is going to send a messenger ahead of him to prepare his way. That's what, that's, what, that's what he tells these priests in the book of Malachi. And so the whole theme of the book is judgment. The great day of the Lord, who can stand, who, who like, like when God comes, who can stand there before him? And the point is no one can. So you need to take refuge in him. And so that's what he's saying is there is going to be someone who comes before this great day of judgment who's going to warn people to say, get your lives straight. That's what he's saying. But then there's a second quotation here from the book of Isaiah, and it says, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. And this is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And what's happening in 39, right before this chapter, is, is God is telling, telling Hezekiah that, hey, listen, all of the people are going to be carried off into Babylon. They're going to come into town. They're going to destroy everything. They're going to carry everyone away, and it's going to be awful. You're going to become slaves there. But then in chapter 40, something turns, and he has this grand vision in which God is going to restore all of his people. God is going to come and bring restoration, and he's going to like come bring bliss to where they will like have a relationship with him. And it's not going to be adversarial, but it's going to be one of like a friend or one of like a father who's there with them to lead them and to guide them, and they're going to walk in righteousness. And that is this vision that he has in Isaiah chapter 40. And in this, he's not talking per se about a physical person who's going to come. He's calling out to the people saying, get your lives straight. But Mark or Peter takes this first and says, no, this was really 
about, about John coming. And so here's what it says, is a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his paths straight. And so for them, someone in the wilderness, being in the wilderness was a place of new beginnings. It was a place where, like, where they could remember into their past the glory days in which God led his people out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness en route to the promised land. And when they were in the wilderness is when God came down to them to live among them and lead them by a pillar of fire. That was the thing. And there was the tabernacle, the temple that he had set up, and that was like God's house in the middle of them. And so in the wilderness for these people meant good things because it meant there was a new beginning coming a new exodus coming for them, a new day of God's greatest restoration for them was coming. And so in this, you have the, in Mark, you have this duality happening here in which you have one, this quotation of judgment in which God is going to come and judge his people and bring this upon them for their sin. But on the second half, there is this quotation of God's great restoration in which God is going to come and redeem his people and live with them. And so at the same time happening here, which is the, this is like the preface or the, or the, the precedent for John, there's this danger that's being presented before he ever presents who John is, in which God is going to come to bring salvation, but there's a danger in that this salvation can become a curse to those who reject it. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. And so there's a guy who's coming to call all people to say, hey, listen, there's one coming after me, and you need to set your life straight. You need to repent and turn and find refuge in God because he's coming to bring salvation to you. He's coming to live among you, to be with you. But if you reject him, it's going to turn into a curse for you. And that's what he's saying. And so what was the point? It was to, it was to bring sin to the forefront of people's minds. Because that's where everyone was, rebelling and away from God. And the point was to bring sin to the forefront of everyone's minds. Because look at both of the quotations. One, he says, prepare your way. And look at the Isaiah quotation. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The point was to reveal sin and to bring it to everyone's mind in order to lead them towards the pathway of restoration. That's what the point is. And so look at verse 4. Here is what Mark tells us that John did. Here's a summary. And John came following that footstep, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so he comes in the wilderness outside, like outside of major towns. He was out in the wilderness, and people were going out to him. In the wilderness for Jews at the time, what did it, what did it mean? It meant a new beginning. Something new was happening, and so they went out to John, and he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance, and he was saying, hey, listen, God is coming, and you need to repent of your sin. You need to, you need to seek to be faithful to God, and you'll find, you'll find refuge in him. And that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And so the point that people repented was to seek to be forgiven by God for their sins. That was the point. And so look at verse 6. Look what the people did. 
the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, they were going out to him. This is a cool message. This is neat. God's going to come to us, and he's going to forgive us. And so they're going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, and they were confessing their sins. That was the natural response. The natural response to listening to John say, hey, repent of your sins, is to repent of your sins. That's the natural response. When he says, hey, listen, seek to be forgiven by God, because it's not going to go well if you don't, the natural, like, like, response that makes sense is to repent and seek to be forgiven by God. Because especially if he's saying, hey, listen, judgment's coming if you don't. Okay, well, I don't want judgment. I want Jesus. And so that's what, that's what he's saying is follow him. Repent of your sins. Humble yourselves now because he's coming. As a side note, this is kind of interesting. I, I don't know if Peter just thought this was cool or what, but it, verse, verse 6 he just says, hey, and John wore camel hair and uh, had a leather belt, and he ate bugs. I don't know why that's there. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, but there it is. That's just what John was doing. But then look at this, verse 7. Look at verse 7. Because John, in the middle of this, you can imagine if you've got all the people of Jerusalem coming out to you to come see you, to hear you speak, to hear, like, to, to be baptized by you specifically, you can imagine that at, at some point you might begin to think, I'm pretty good at this. But there's something in John to where he knows, like he, like, he is steadfast in his mission of knowing that he's not the headliner. So we went and saw um, John Mayer uh, a couple nights ago in uh, Dallas. He's totally awesome. He's amazing. Um, but he actually didn't have an opener at his... Uh, uh, at his concert, he did two sets for like three hours. It was awesome. But, um, but the other day, or the other day, a couple years ago, my brother and I went and saw Coldplay. And, uh, um, and so we went and saw Coldplay, and there were two openers for him at this concert. And you know what we noticed is, is for the opening acts, their music was quite a bit softer. Because I remember the first one they were playing, and there's like people are still filling in to, the, to, the, to uh, Jerry World. And uh, people were still filling in there. And so the music was kind of soft, and there was some girls singing. And I remember thinking, like, this is really not very loud. Like, I'm struggling to hear, like, really well what's going on. This is not what I was expecting. And then the second band came to play, and it got a little bit louder. And then when Coldplay came on, it was like, boom, here we are. And it was really loud. And so for those people, like, like, the, like the, the point... The point of, like, the opening acts was simply to set the stage. They were not supposed to be the reason you're there. Like, there were 60,000 people there. None of them were there for the opening acts. Maybe they were. I don't know. I wasn't. But, I, but like, the music was softer for the openers. The stage wasn't set for the openers. It was all Coldplay stuff with sheets over it. Like, the point was not them. The point was Coldplay. And so when they got out there, all of a sudden the music is bumped and really loud. They got all the sheets off. They got all the lights going. Everyone's wristbands are like doing all these cool colors. And it's like the, the point was to be there for Coldplay. And John knows this. John knows he's an opener. John knows he's not the headliner. And so everyone's coming out to him, and everything in him's like, hey, listen, listen, Look, it's, it's not me. You're not coming for me. Don't think I'm cool. Don't get me to sign your Bible or whatever the thing is. Like, it's not about me. And so he's saying, the, there's one who's coming after me who's more powerful than me. He says, one who's more powerful than I am is coming after me. 
I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so he said a couple things there. He's giving a description. He says, this guy who's coming after me is pretty mighty. He's holy. He says, he's coming, so get ready. And then the last thing he says is this, is I'm doing simple things with water that's not going to do anything for you. It's a symbol. Like John baptizing in the water for, for repentance was simply a symbol of people laying their hearts out before God. It did nothing for them like actually, like physically or spiritually. It was simply a symbol of what was happening in their hearts. That was the point. It was an act of obedience to follow God and say, hey, listen, I want to put you first. I want to follow you, and I want to repent of my sins, and you're putting out there publicly. But he's saying, but the guy coming after me, he's not going to do that. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so the point here is not like to focus on a physical baptism. There's, he's not saying, like, if you truly believe in Jesus, you're going to have this, this physical experience of being baptized in the Spirit in which you'll have tongues or something. Like, that's not the point. He's comparing, like, the, 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 he's comparing, like, the, the, their ministries. He, so he's saying, he's saying, like, there's, we're at a different level. Like, we're at a different level. Like, I'm going to baptize you with water simply to say, hey, follow God. I'm simply like a pastor. That's all I'm doing is saying, hey, listen, follow God with your life. But the guy coming after me, he is going to be able to bring about an entirely new relationship with God for you. And so when he says you are going to be baptized with the Spirit, what he's saying is, is if you follow this guy and believe this guy and put everything into being with this guy, then guess what? You are going to get more than water. You are going to get the Spirit of God living in you. You're going to have an entirely new relationship with God that's impossible to anyone outside of him and before him. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And so all of this was simply to point to Jesus. Point to this guy who's coming after him, who's mighty, who's holy, who's going to bring about a new relationship with God. And the point is this, follow him. Prepare your heart for him. Lay your life down before him. Repent of your sin before him. Because if you don't do that, if you don't give fully of yourself, lay down your life to follow him, then his salvation will become a curse for you. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And so there's an element of fear in which he's trying to instill here of this dude who's coming. And so what do we do? What's our response? The most natural response in this message is to do this. Repent of your sin. Recognize where you are being unfaithful to God and confess that to Him and seek His forgiveness. That's the point here. And so humble yourself before God and say, God, I messed up. I need to repent in this area, be it your anger, be it something with your marriage, be it whatever the thing may be. That's the, that's the first thing. But on the other side of that, there's, there's an element of grace in this, isn't there? And that God has not left us alone. God has not left us 
to deal with our sin on our own and just to simply like stand over us and just be like, you're being bad, and then like smite us. Like, no, like in this, what he's saying is that God is literally coming here to be with us, to lead us to restoration. And so the second, the second like application of this is to praise God because he has come for us. And so him leading you away from sin is not being mean or giving you a set of rules. Him leading you away from sin is for your good, and that is grace. He wants you to live abundant lives. And so therefore he is saying, run away from things that are going to lead to death and follow the things that are on the pathway towards life. That's what he's saying. And so praise God because he has come for you and wants to lead you to be with him, which is for your good. And the last thing is for those of us who have already decided to follow Jesus. Maybe some of us for the first time may need to take up John's attitude. Because everything in John was pointing to someone else. Everything in him was like, no, it's not about me. I'm laying down my life for this. My, I have a mission here, and everything is about this guy who's coming after me. And maybe some of us for the first time need to be able to think that way and recognize that your job, your time at school, your time at home is not about living like your best life now. It's not about having people serve you. It's not about ultimately gaining a promotion or making a ton of money or getting the best grades or whatever the thing may be or getting the hottest boyfriend, whatever the thing may be. Ultimately, what John is saying, and we can mimic from him, is that he's saying everything is about this guy who's coming after him. And so for some of us, maybe that this today's the first time in which we need to look at our lives and say, I want to live for that. I want to be like that. I want to live for the guy who's coming after me and point to Jesus. And so I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're at, but you do. And so as the band comes up, assess. Assess, like, what do you need to repent of? Assess if you need to begin to live like John. And point to someone who's bigger and grander than you and who can save people. And that's Jesus. And for some of us, maybe we've been living so long and like just feeling so down about our sin, so down about our lives, so down about something, and we have neglected to find joy in the fact that God came for you. And so us repenting of our sin and thinking about our sin and dwelling of our sin, like, yes, that leads us to want to repent and turn to God, but maybe what you need to do is simply stop and say, God came for me, but not so I would dwell on being horrible, but so that I would praise Him and follow Him and find my hope in Him because it's not me. And so maybe you need to praise Him this morning that He came for you when you were unfaithful to him. And he said, I want you, and I want you to be with me. And so as the band plays, you respond. If you need someone to pray with you, I'll be over here at my seat. You can come just over to this section over here and find me. Um, but maybe you just need to stay where you're at. And so as the band plays, you respond.